I'm not sure how many people saw the cover of Sunday's Daily News this week, but it sure fit well with the topic of our 880 In-Depth this week. The cartoon shows uh, caricatures of New York's most powerful Washington politicians stepping out of a yellow cab with a banner headline that reads, Big Apple Circus. The sub-headline says, after years in political desert, New York polls finally rule D.C. swamp. This week on 880 In-Depth, New York's dramatic rise to power in the nation's capital. I'm Tim Sheld in Studio 11B with WCBS reporter Peter Haskell. Hi, Peter. And we're pleased to have on the phone former Congressman Steve Israel from Long Island's North Shore. He served uh, from 2001 till 2017. He is currently director of the Cornell Institute of Politics and Global Affairs in New York City and generally a very good guy. We've always had a good relationship with uh, with you, Congressman, and we appreciate your insight in coming on and, and talking uh, with us about this topic. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I'm delighted. Who would you consider the most powerful member of the New York delegation? Would it, would it be Chuck Schumer just because of his, uh, his power seat there in the Senate? Yeah, but I would, uh, I would break it down a little bit. Of course, Chuck Schumer, uh, he is the Senate minority leader, uh, arguably uh, the most powerful uh, in, uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, but over on the House side, which I'm more familiar with, having served there for 16 years, the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, the chairman of the House Majority Caucus, is Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn. Uh, so you've got Schumer in the Senate, Hakeem Jeffries, who's the chairman of the caucus in the House. And then, of course, you have a, well, he was once a New Yorker uh, in the White House, Donald Trump, and now he's a Florida resident. <laughs> well, let me ask you about Hakeem Jeffries. If you could just explain what does the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus do and wh- where is that power derived from? Well, it's probably uh, it's in the top five uh, of the leadership of the House of Representatives. Uh, and the responsibility uh, of the chairman of the caucus is uh, essentially to run the entire Democratic caucus, is to represent the caucus in leadership meetings, uh, is to manage the very uh, frequently raucous meetings of the Democratic caucus, uh, to uh, represent the caucus's views uh, with the media. There are several uh, positions within the uh, the leadership in the House of Representatives. Of course, Nancy Pelosi is the speaker. And then there is the uh, majority leader, Steny Hoyer from Maryland. And then there is the uh, majority whip, Jim Clyburn from South Carolina. And then there is the chairman of the caucus. And that's a, a guy from Brooklyn named Hakeem Jeffries. And that is very beneficial to us because every time tough decisions are being made in that small leadership group, there is a New Yorker uh, in those meetings, and that's Hakeem. Is that helpful to us back home to have that kind of influence in, in yes. Nancy Pelosi's office? It's extraordinarily helpful. So I, uh, I was in the leadership. I chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee for uh, four years. Uh, and so every time there was a leadership meeting, uh, I sat there. Uh, also, Joe Crowley, former Congressman Joe Crowley, uh, sat there as the former chair of the Democratic Caucus. And so when, a, for example, I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, we were uh, buffeted uh, by Superstorm Sandy, uh, and uh, there were a group of Republicans at the time uh, who were uh, opposing any kind of federal emergency disaster assistance for New Yorkers. 
uh, and uh, we had to, we had some pretty tough negotiations with that group, having New Yorkers in those leadership meetings to make sure that New Yorkers got everything they needed to represent our constituents at the very highest levels of decision making was absolutely critical. And then, of course, having Chuck Schumer working on the Senate side uh, was a, a great one-two punch. I saw you on television last week, and I was interested to, to, to hear you relay a story about sometimes how those meetings in the, uh, in the, in the majority leader's office or in Nancy Pelosi's office uh, can get. And you said uh, you relate a story about her pointing from time to time to a, to a picture, uh, to, a, yes. uh, to a painting in there. Would you tell that story? Yeah, so when uh, we would have those leadership meetings uh, and we were grappling with some really contentious issues, both on the politics and the policy, uh, and uh, we seemed divided, uh, Pelosi would always point to the one portrait that she had hanging on the wall of her conference room. And it was a portrait of Congressman Abraham Lincoln, not President Congressman Abraham Lincoln, taken, I believe, in 1848 or 1849. And she would remind us of something that Lincoln said, uh, and it is this, quote, public sentiment is everything. She would say public sentiment is everything. And she, that doesn't mean that when you're in the leadership, you just put up your finger and measure the prevailing winds. It means as a leader, you have a responsibility to shape public sentiment, to educate people, to hear their views and try and incorporate and integrate their views into the decision making. Uh, and that's what guided Nancy Pelosi and I think guides the, the New Yorkers who are now so influential uh, in the House of Representatives and the Senate. You talked about the Sandy funding. Just if you could take us into that, that room, you've got Republicans who are saying, we don't want to spend the money. We don't like New York. What are they saying? And then how does the New York power counteract that or try to win them over? Yeah, you know, Peter, this is one of my most frustrating moments in 16 years in Congress. Uh, I voted and, uh, and, and Republican Congressman Peter King voted on a bipartisan basis consistently to provide federal emergency assistance and appropriations to Louisiana when it was flooded, uh, to Oklahoma when the tornadoes came. Uh, to uh, areas of California when the drought came. We did that because we believed it wasn't a parochial issue. This is what a, a, a federal government does. It provides emergency assistance to make sure that we don't lose communities. But when Sandy came, uh, a group of uh, very conservative Republicans, uh, the same Republicans who gratefully received federal assistance when they had natural disasters, decided that New York didn't deserve any help. Uh, and part of it was uh, hypocrisy. Part of it was something that, that really frustrated me, the sense that many members of Congress have that if you represent New York, you're representing the Hamptons, that this is just a Gold Coast beachfront community, that nobody needs federal assistance because we all live in, in gated communities and mansions with beautiful waterfront views. Uh, and we had to fight against that. I have to say that, you know, people like Peter King, who's now retired and that's a, is retiring, and that's a huge loss, I will tell you, for the New York delegation. Uh, people like Peter King and Democrats and Nancy Pelosi uh, worked together to rebuff those who would uh, deny us the aid that we needed. And that only happened because of the, frankly, uh, the, the righteousness of the cause, but also because we were in leadership and we were in a position to make sure that uh, nobody conceded to that ridiculous view. 
you talk about the leadership, but clearly Jerry Nadler is front and center as the chair of judiciary. Carolyn Maloney has taken over for the late Elijah Cummings. She's chair of oversight. Elliot Engel is chair of foreign affairs, Nita Lowy appropriations. New Yorkers like to think like to think of themselves at the center of the universe. When it comes to <laughs> politics in D.C. now, how much clout is there within the New York delegation? And what does that mean for folks who live here? Do we get more? Do we do better? Well, first, uh, yes, we have tremendous clout. Uh, I would say uh, we're, we're probably at or near the top of our game in terms of the influence we have, uh, particularly the people that uh, you mentioned. Um, and to the, to the second question, clout in Washington is about being heard and being in the room. And if you have a delegation that's a bunch of backbenchers that aren't on key committees, that aren't invited to leadership meetings, uh, it's very easy to get lost in the shuffle. Um, luckily, we have New Yorkers with sharp elbows uh, and, uh, and uh, no, <laughs> very little shyness uh, who are able to penetrate those meetings and, and stand up for New Yorkers. And, and, and it's not just a, a one-off like uh, uh, Superstorm Sandy. It's making sure that when a, a highway bill is passed, that New York's roads are being taken care of, that the federal government is investing in New York, making sure, for example, this is something that uh, I was involved in with Peter King, uh, the Long Island Sound uh, was receiving record-breaking investments for pollution cleanup and water quality. Um, New York is a donor community, as you know. I'll just uh, say this one last thing on this question. New York is a donor community, meaning our taxpayers contribute more to the federal government than we receive from the federal government. When you are in leadership, you have an ability to uh, create more of an equivalence to redirect those federal dollars back to the taxpayers who are paying the most. And that's why cloud is so important. Let me, let me ask you about um, being a contrarian, uh, being outside the lines of, uh, of, of leadership from time to time. Uh, you know, back in your time, I know uh, you had a tough uh, vote on use of force, and you, you split with uh, many in your party and voted uh, on the other side of, uh, yeah. of use of force. How difficult is it to do that when you're a, you're a young person in Congress trying to have a voice and being worried about that voice being squashed? Boy, it's a great question. Um, the, the price of being in leadership is the assumption, not necessarily proven by fact, but the assumption that many have that you will always represent your party, that you're not going to stray from the party line, that as a leader of the Democrats or the Republicans, uh, you're going to reflect the consensus of your caucus, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans. Um, that's, that may be the assumption, but the assumption is, is, is proven wrong. Uh, I proved it wrong when I voted against uh, the, uh, the prevailing Democratic view on the Iran nuclear deal. I thought it was a bad deal. As a Democrat and a Democratic leader, I voted against it. Um, I voted for the use of force in Iraq. By the way, I regret that view today, uh, but I thought that at the time uh, that uh, it was the right vote. Peter King, on the other hand, a Republican, voted against uh, his, uh, the Freedom Caucus, that group of, of, of fiscal conservatives, uh, when it came to appropriations for disaster assistance. So 
when you're in the leadership, you do have a responsibility to be a team player because, you know, you're, you're in the front office of the team. But there are moments when you've just got to depart. You've got to stand with your district, even when you find yourself standing against your own party. When you um, are doing your work now at, uh, at Cornell in the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs uh, in the city, uh, and you look at what has gone on with uh, young members of Congress, uh, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, how do you view that, having had that insider view and now uh, look at it in a more 10,000-foot view? You know, uh, I, I understand it because um, uh, AOC is not the first person to get elected to Congress in an unexpected victory uh, and uh, you receive so much attention, well-deserved attention, by the way, uh, and, and try and shake things up. Um, after, it, it's good to be a disruptor. Uh, I loved disruptors. I, I tried to be disruptive at times. But there is a point where you have to get to back to the kind of the gravity uh, of why you're there. And you're there to serve your constituents. Uh, you're there to provide constituent services. You're there to negotiate, to see if you can find common ground. I think she's done that. Uh, I think she's found that spot. Uh, and uh, most of her colleagues did as well. At the end of the day, at the end of every election, you're judged by your constituents uh, or customers, as I would call them, because I, I only had a two-year employment agreement with them that they could renew uh, or, uh, or nullify. At the end of the day, your, your customers judge you, judge you by, did you work hard uh, and did you work hard for them? Uh, and as long as you're focused on that one issue at the end of the day, you're going to get reelected. We've been talking an awful lot about the Democrats because the Democrats uh, hold control of the House. But there are Republicans who have either been very prominent or are becoming a little more prominent. Pete King is a guy you talk about who's worked in a bipartisan fashion. And then you've got Elise Stefanik from upstate who really has gained a lot of support within the Republican Party for what she's doing. And Lee Zeldin out of Long Island, another Republican. How do they play in? And how important is it for them to either work with the Democrats or against the Democrats to try to get the support that they want for the issues important to them? Uh, Congressman Zeldin and Congressman Stefanik absolutely fascinate me uh, as the former chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I know both of their districts. Stefanik represents uh, North Country, uh, and her district sprawls to Canada, Watertown, uh, from the Adirondacks. And, of course, Congressman Zeldin represents Eastern Long Island. What's fascinating about their districts is that these are districts that voted for Barack Obama twice. These were considered to be quintessentially moderate district, rejecting extremes. But both uh, Congressman Zeldin and Congressman Stefanik have, have made a decision uh, that, they're going, that uh, they are going to be uh, proactive, highly visible uh, in their opposition to an impeachment inquiry. Now, the, the textbook, the political textbooks say that's a risky strategy because they represent moderate districts and they may lose the moderates in, their, in those districts. But I think they also understand in their districts that there's a real Trump base there. I mean, President Trump won both districts in 2016 uh, by between 14 and 16 points. So they have to walk that tightrope between uh, losing moderates and losing members of, of their base. I think they've both decided that they can't afford to lose members uh, of their base, and, and they may have their own moral judgments about the impeachment inquiry. 
The difficulty with that strategy is if you come to Congress as a moderate and you want to work with both sides of the aisle, if you adopt a posture that is just you know, consistently condemning your colleagues on the other side of the aisle, it's harder to make the case that you need their help and should receive their help when you have a problem in the district. So it's just human nature. You, you, know, you, you can pursue your strategies, um, but you don't want to sever your ties to the other side of the aisle with a kind of in-your-face strategy. You understand as well as anybody that power ebbs and flows, and there's constantly a, a churn of personnel. New York is losing two really key members, Pete King, a former chair of Homeland Security, and it, you've mentioned him on a number of issues. He's retiring. Nita Lowy, chair of appropriations, she's retiring. Jose Serrano is retiring. What will the impact of these retirements be on New York? So, um, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about New York, uh, you know, surging in its clout in Washington, uh, but I would temper it with uh, the fact that uh, Nita Lowy is leaving and Joe Serrano, so we're losing two members of the Appropriations Committee, including the chair. Uh, We're losing uh, Congressman Peter King from the Financial Services Committee. So, you know, it's a bit of a a mixed bag, uh, and I'm hopeful that we can, uh, uh, you know, in 2020, uh, elect people who will kind of replenish New York's clout. Uh, Real quick, as we wrap this up um, and we're closing out the year, are you optimistic about um, how we are operating in Congress these days and whether we'll be able to rise above the the hyper-partisanship that we've and and the dysfunction that we've seen? Or maybe it is not. Maybe it's not dysfunction. I shouldn't shouldn't say that. Are you optimistic about whether we can rise above the partisanship that we see? Oh, no, it's dysfunction. Um, And it's the worst I've ever seen, to be perfectly candid with you. I I am not optimistic between now and the election. I think it's actually going to become even more frenzied and even more partisan between now and uh, next November as both tribes go to war against one another. And the center is not holding. Um, Moderates on both sides of the aisle are finding it to be increasingly lonely space. I'm optimistic that when we get past the election, um, both sides will declare a ceasefire uh, and try and get to uh, some common ground. And then the final thing I would say on this is Congress is actually more collegial than you would think. Um, It's like a the surface of an ocean uh, in a bad storm. The, the surface is frothy and has violent waves, very turbulent. But underneath, you do have relationships. My advice to the people who are still there uh, was find that friend on the other side of the aisle. Go to the member's balcony uh, and talk about common ground uh, and not, uh, you know, the, the uh, divisive poles that divide Congress. Well, that's a terrific way to end it. Um, appreciate your time, Steve Israel, and uh, we'll see you. We wish you a happy holiday, sir, and a, and a terrific New Year. Thanks to you, too. And that's this week on In-Depth. But before we go, I wanted to bring in uh, our engineering friend, Bill Tynan, who uh, helped us record this this week and does it on a regular basis because we've reached a milestone in doing In-Depth. I don't know how many weeks we've been doing it, Bill, but do you know that we're now available wherever you get your podcasts? So if you, you can actually subscribe to this on a weekly basis, you just type in the words WCBS 880 In-Depth and look what you find. So I've been engineering these for how many weeks now? And I I only find this out now? (laughs) Well, we wanted to share this good news because I did a search today and I saw it and I said, 
we want to spread this far and wide. So your great engineering is now available on a regular basis wherever you get your podcasts. I'm honored. Thank you, Tim. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.